Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 10. rifle in my hands barely vibrated, and I felt no kick whatsoever. I'd had it on semi-auto and ran off at least a dozen anti-purse rounds into the human figure behind the door, my jagged nerves twitching my finger in the rushed, time-honored fashion of untrained gunmen everywhere. The person there fell back with a fluttery spray of red and lay still. I moved in to see, ready to shoot, ready to keep shooting, but there was no one else in the lock. It was a man, and he lay on his face, his back bearing red holes. He wore the ubiquitous station green and no pressure suit. He'd been on his knees, leaning back right up against the door, and my shot had knocked him forward. He just lay there, completely still. There were red spatters all over the inside of the large lock, and steam came off them as they bubbled and freeze-dried in the vacuum. It came off the man as well. Did I do all this? <clears throat> so shocked and nauseated was I suddenly that the words came out in a coughing choke. Bin Roggenston pushed me out of the way and moved in. He turned the body over, and all I saw was a red ruin. The man would have been dead or dying just from us having cycled the airlock, and my point-blank shots had caught him diagonally, from one shoulder down through his torso. Dead twice over, then, if somebody hadn't beaten us to it. By the ripped chopped look of his face that somebody must have used a crowd gun. There was a blue rag tied to his right arm, and he wore a worker's jumpsuit. Do not vomit in helmet. is deadly. This one killed by guards not long ago. I just shot. I, I didn't even think about it. Jacques follow orders. is good thing. Could be maybe man is in suit with gun, waiting to ambush. Could not know. Was clean shots. Ben Roggenstein not even see him. I, I've never killed anyone. Still have not, he clarified, waving the man, his life, and his death away dismissively. God, it's all gone mad in there. Not staying long if can help it. He turned to me and took my shoulders, looking through both our faceplates with those granite eyes. Remember, he's just beginning. He said it slowly and with all the pain, forthrightness, and gravity that a combat veteran has to offer. I, I remember. I'll be okay. This is new to me, that's all. I'll do my job. He studied me carefully for the space of a few heartbeats, then nodded once and turned away to the panel for the inner airlock door. Stepping around the already forgotten fellow on the floor, he crouched to have a good look at the small pad. When he spoke again, there was a frown in his voice. Inner door is security locked. Why would they do that? This guy wasn't coming back in. So no one can outflank like we do now. He took out a small cutter and began working on the door's access panel. Put this one outside. He is in way. Then come back and shut door. We'll cycle automatically when crank closed. 
He handed me the tool he'd used, which I clipped to my belt. Then I grabbed the dead man by the feet and dragged him outside and around the pillar. Vapor still flowed out of him in steady streams, pooling around him in the vac, as if like some weird Victorian automaton, like a broken dream of a man, he'd only been powered by steam. I took a moment after this to look up at Griselda, docked silently at the hub above my head. Pragmatism had won every battle over beauty with the Pelican class, but beautiful it was nonetheless. The spin of the station may have simulated gravity, but that ship had an indefinable pull of its own right then, making me fear greatly that I was traveling in exactly the wrong direction. I took a breath and wrenched my eyes away from it, and was so surprised that they were watering. Before stepping back into the airlock where the older man was still attacking the other door, I had the thought to remove the blue rag from the dead man's arm. I thought if we had to bluff our way through a crowd, it would be a handy thing to have. Fumbling with its knot and heavy gloves proved frustrating, so I ended up yanking it roughly past the guy's elbow. Then I stuffed it into my flight bag, which was where I had the pellet gun and stunner, and rejoined Ben Roggenston. I managed a clumsy reverse imitation of the chief engineer's earlier method of cranking the outer door's gearing. There was a separate panel over the motor on this side. In a minute or so, after finally ratcheting it completely closed, I felt a mechanical bolt clunk into place. Ben Roggenston already had the access panel off the other door, and the circuits and wiring were all exposed. When I gave him the thumbs up, he bridged two circuits with his wrench. Warning. Cycle in progress. Warning. The sign above the door behind me, cracked and dirty though it was, flashed red and amber consecutively in both English and low speak. This put a sputtering glare on the engineer's faceplate so I couldn't see his expression, but his voice and tone over the comm were plain enough. Air is one thing, but we'll have to be forcing lock on this door. Burn out chip here, then crank open. We'll maybe make alarm in maintenance office. What about security? Not knowing. Maybe too. Watch door carefully and do same as before. Shoot if anyone there. But there wasn't. Not this time. It took him nearly five minutes of fussing and swearing in various languages, as well as a quick touch to a circuit with his pen-sized arc welder before he was able to start ratcheting. In short order, the door had cleared its casement about halfway, which was enough for us to get in. The airlock opened onto a wide stairway that went down one flight, all twilight and creepy-looking. It had the appearance of ill maintenance, or maybe the scavenging of its parts, what with numerous dead light fixtures overhead. This led to a short companionway that held air packs and small foldable scoots and a series of wall hooks. The scoots were used for simple transportation in zero gravity and looked pretty old and battered. The hallway continued on to a changing room. There was an intact door frame right there where another pressure hatch was supposed to be, but the door itself was missing. The room held racks of filthy pressure suits, a couple chipped, sagging benches, and several piles of those same generic jumpers that the workers all wore. A couple security helmets sat off to the side on a rack of their own. Should change, maybe. Dress as police. No, I replied, unlatching my helmet. Regular workers. The police unit for this station is small enough that they must all know each other. Better to look like one of the crowd. 
He grunted approval and listened at the door, while I found a smelly jumper for myself that more or less fit. Then we switched places. I disassembled the panther and put it into my flight bag, since it would only draw attention in here. I gave him the pellet gun and kept the stunner, tucking it into an upper pocket I hoped I could reach in a hurry. When we were ready, Bin Roggenston opened the locker room door a crack and took a peek. Then he stuck his shaggy head out entirely. Companion way. Empty. We moved out in what would have seemed like a suspicious manner had there been any witnesses. We were right at the intersection of two major corridors. There were definite signs of a struggle here, including someone dressed in station green, lying on the carpeted deck maybe 15 meters down one side. A wide red stain spread out from under him, her, it, soaking the threadbare carpet. In fact, some of the floor covering was chewed up in odd little tufts, indicating crowd gunshots that had missed. The walls were smeared here and there with grease and what looked and smelled like feces. There were also bloodstains in a few spots. Half the lighting fixtures were out, lending the scene an especially sinister aspect. There was the lingering smell of burnt plastic in the circulated air, but no visible smoke, which was good. The ping came from this side somewhere. I said, indicating the left-hand branch of the intersection. But it might not be on this deck. It could be further down. Griselda's chief engineer said nothing, but led the way in the direction I had indicated. This was some sort of maintenance wing, with various testing offices, machine shops, and storage rooms to either side. The paint on the walls was peeling away in places, and several more rooms had doors missing. Quick glances into the storage compartments revealed lots of empty racks. Each doorway had a sign in low-speak and Inglis, or had had a sign, some were missing or marked up with paint and scratches. We came upon one that read, 11B, Atmos Storage. Sure enough, the door was off and the racks were empty. In fact, there were only two racks in there at all, and if anything, it looked like they were just tossing trash into the room now. Broken furniture, bags of wet, leaky stuff, nondescript machine parts, all of it just thrown in, and most of it near the door. Life support replacement parts? And it's empty and abandoned? What kind of place is this? Bad one, came the low reply, but then he held up his hand as he spotted something down the companionway. I looked up just in time to see a figure, some twenty meters on, dash into a room off to the left. It had seemed to be wearing a similar jumpsuit to ours and had brown hair, but that was all I could make out. That's not security. Should we talk to the natives? Somebody might know where Carmi and Dell are. Might shoot us too. I didn't see a gun. And this means they have none? But he started on again slowly. As we moved forward, Bin Roggenston's left hand held the pellet gun, and I fished out my stunner. We both kept glancing back the way we'd come every few steps. The tension and fear were like the strings of a violin bow sawing across all my raw nerves at once. I thought I might throw up from it, or from the memory of the airlock man, now that it was safe to do so. But as we approached the door we'd seen the figure enter, a female voice called out something challenging in low speak. Greta, the older man replied as a way of saying hello. He ventured a few more things I couldn't follow, but was cut off by a second female voice. Get lost! Leave us alone! It was good English and without a regional accent, what we often referred to as a spacer's tone. 
I sounded of it myself after all these years, but this one was plainly terrified. We will, I stated. We just need to know if you've seen any crew members off Griselda, the ship that's docked right now. Our captain and broker were in a meeting with some guy named Clemens when we lost contact. We think they might be around here somewhere. There was an intense, muttered conversation. Then the first voice replied, in English this time, but with a distinct accent, Dein Clemens is dead, shot with bolting tool. You see our people? Ben Roggenstein pressed. No, the woman's companion replied. But Clemens' office is on the next floor down. Are you leaving the system? Can you take us with you? The older man and I just looked at each other then, the question throwing us off for a moment. We're not going anywhere without our crew, I responded at length, though I wasn't at all sure that Ailareta, back on the ship, would have agreed with even that much. They'll kill us if they find us, please. Who will? Who's in charge here now? These dear Capua revolutionaries, the noble space woman swore. Hyatzins, Ebons, Blues and Blacks, can get this down to Barlow at least? Ship has no shuttle, Ben Roggenstein stated. Where would rebels take prisoners? They kill prisoners, put in the other voice. Your people are probably dead. Please take us with you. We're just office managers. We're newly married. Please help us. Flummoxed, I looked at the chief, but his face was unchanged. Not impassive or uncaring, but not soft either. We coming around corner now, he stated, and stepped out slowly. There was a gasp from inside when they saw his pellet gun, but he quickly pointed the weapon down at the deck while raising his offhand in supplication. I followed his step and manner, pocketing the tiny stunner in front of them so they could see what it was I had and that I meant them no harm. My flight bag, with our only real gun, was slung from my shoulder. This was another abandoned supply room, for plumbing apparently, because the two women, who watched us from around the edge of a mostly empty storage rack, held long, solid lengths of plastic piping, each one light enough to wield one-handed, but easily hard and strong enough to break bones with a good hit. You wearing station uniform, said the noble spacewoman who stood to the front. Somewhere in her late thirties, she was short and stocky, with dark skin and black, spiky hair. Her eyes hovered somewhere between fight and flight, with no flight available, so neither of us entered. Her wife, a tall, pale, and overall less substantial woman of slightly younger years, had large, nervous eyes, and she stood behind. We borrowed them, I explained. We got into the station from outside, through the airlock back there. We changed clothes to blend in. We can follow back, the accented woman stated simply. Will you take us? Yeah, the older man replied with equal simplicity. But freeze tubes only, and you will pay for passage. Agreed? He's one of the owners, I added, then gave our names and positions. He can make this deal, but we can't leave until we know what happened to our crew. Can you take us to this guy's office? We're still getting a bounce back from our captain's comm. We, we have no credit. I mean, we wouldn't be able to access our savings. We'll figure that part out later, I replied. We can draw up a bill of passage and you can make payments or something when you get settled. But if you help us now, we will get you out of here. Fair? They looked at each other for agreement, then both nodded. 
What are names? Ben Roggenston asked when they'd finally come out from behind the rack and tentatively joined us at the doorway. Gaela and Susan Betuela, the Ain woman replied, indicating herself as Susan. A pleasure to meet you both, I said in my best and most solicitous Stuart's manner. Though I wish circumstances were better. Now, if you please, don't lead the way, but do tell us where we're going and when to turn. The women brought along their plastic melee weapons, just in case. They couldn't have been sure of us yet, and anyway, there was still a lot to be scared of in the place. Gaela indicated a passage that branched off to the right. It led to an elevator bank and also opened onto stairs. We took these. There were signs of fighting here, too, and some of that revolutionary graffiti, the first I'd yet seen on station. How long was all this brewing? I asked quietly as we stepped down the two flights to the deck below. Too long, Gaela replied with disgust. Years. Workers want everything on platter. Nothing is enough for them. Good pay, good conditions, nothing. I thought it would be poor timing, even for me, to argue that the workers must have had some serious gripes in order for murder in the companion ways to become an acceptable method of airing grievances, so I held my tongue. We were on the landing below by this time, which had a door. Ben Roggenston indicated for quiet, and we all listened. After a few seconds, he opened it a crack and looked out into an alcove that mirrored the one above except for the partially dried blood on the wall opposite and the crumpled form below it that had been a living man only recently. Dine the Clemens, Gaela muttered with a small, tired wave. Susan looked ready to break, but was still holding it together somehow. Which way to office? Ben Roggenston breathed over his shoulder. It's around the corner, Susan replied quaveringly. Right, then left, three or four doors down. It's marked. Be staying here, Ben Roggenstein go, and come back. And then he was gone. And then he was back. He had Carmi's flight jacket in one hand. Place is wreck, only finding this. That was both a relief and a new worry. Then they're hostages? That means they're alive for now. Could be for now is short. Then where? Where would they be? We looked to the two women, but it was clear they had no idea. Okay, the older man stated after a moment's consideration. Mission is failure. Cannot be strolling around station. We all must leave. I wanted to argue. I opened my mouth to do it, but I had nothing. Our people could be anywhere on this rusty ring, and we'd pushed our luck scouting around to its likely maximum, especially now with refugees in tow pressing on blindly with suicide. But I'm stubborn, and that's a thing that can be both smart and stupid at the same time. I touched my wrist comp and called the ship. Griselda, this is Ejok. Patch me through to Ira. How's it going? Ailerada responded instead, by way of answer. We found Carmi's jacket, but no sign of either her or Dell. Looks like the revolution won in here. The local net is still down, but I had a thought. These jokers have to be talking to each other somehow, impromptu mesh or maybe just calm to calm. Can Ira check for chatter on non-standard channels? He paused for a bit to consider it, this consideration being mostly due to the fact that it was coming from me, I'm sure, then gave the call over to Ira, who'd been monitoring us. This is going to take some time, Ejok, he told me, jumping in. 
Better give me a few minutes. I acknowledged and closed the line. Jock is not hearing Ben Rogenston, the chief engineer demanded quietly. We'll leave. That's fine, I replied a bit defensively because I really didn't want him angry with me. Maybe Ira can overhear something while we're on the move. It doesn't hurt to listen. His dark, heavy brows scowled at me, like he intended to continue the dressing down at a later, less urgent time. But he was in military mode right now, while I wasn't and never would be. So I didn't care about any of that beyond the possibility of losing his esteem. Surprisingly, it had come to matter a lot. We retreated up the stairs and tiptoed back down the way we had come. Slowly, we passed the storeroom where the women had been holed up. Then we passed the garbage-filled one. Then we were up to the intersection near the locker room. Ben Rogenston must have heard something because he held up his hand with a quick gesture that demanded stillness and silence. Then I heard it too. Several indistinct voices around the corner, sharp and clipped, and with a hyped-up character to them. They were definitely approaching. I started to fumble with the bag full of gun parts, but he gave me that gesture again and an urgent glare. The people around the corner suddenly stopped their chatter, so I guess I'd been a lot louder than I'd intended. The voice was fierce and angry-sounding. The women were gripping their plastic clubs in plain terror, and I probably was doing the same with the stunner. But the chief engineer looked back at us with an almost laconic shrug. Is this your liberen? He called out gruffly. Are you free men? Ja, liberen, brother. Jubilaten. Bid Rogenston poked his head out tentatively, his hands up. Omnis liberen? Confligo terminat? They assured him that all was fine. He shook his head and shuffled out like a frightened old man. In other circumstances, this would have been hilarious, but all I could think about was my flight bag. In point of fact, the Panther's instruction manual had explicitly stated that the rifle could be fired in its base form, as well as when it was fully assembled. I didn't need the stock, the barrel, or even any clips of ammunition if there was at least one bullet chambered. But it made noise getting to it, and the chief engineer had something in mind. He babbled continually to them now, sounding relieved and grateful. The women and I just exchanged frightened, ignorant looks. Then Ben Rogenston's tone changed, like he had just remembered a thing, and he turned back around the corner to us. He indicated the bag, and I opened it for him, all while he chattered to the unseen group. He grasped the base unit and a clip of anti-purse rounds. The guy we had heard, still talking idly, stepped up behind him and saw the rest of us there. He was tall and in his twenties or thirties with gaunt, hard features and matted hair. He wore coveralls like everyone else on this station and bore a blue rag tied on his left arm. In his hands, held at a careless angle, was a crowd gun. A couple fast shots from that weapon and he could have cut all four of us down where we stood. Except he was not a soldier, just an aggressive member of the mob, a man who had endured a lifetime of abuse and who, with passion and patriotism, had one day taken up arms with his fellows and liberated the station in the name of all the free people of Barlow. Or maybe he was just a thug. Either way, he was plainly surprised to see us and didn't have the training to keep his weapon ready. Before he could speak or make an alert or demand anything of anyone, I pressed the stunner's thumb trigger. 
The weapon expelled its charge with a crackly snap, like a mini bolt of lightning, though no arc was visible. With a grunting cry, the man simply fell backwards onto the floor. Griselda's chief engineer turned back around with the truncated rifle while snapping in its ammo insert. A panther needs no prepping. It needs no springs to be pulled or levers to be flipped. It's a marvel of mayhem, a corporate-made triumph of destruction. The older man just canted to face the others around the corner, his thumb on the safety, and squeezed off three shots with a fast staccato. Susan screamed once, short and high like a strangled chirp, but the fight was already over. Ben Roggenston stepped forward and I followed. The gaunt man lay on his back, neither writhing nor gasping. He was unconscious, but the three others to the left were in much worse shape. One slumped against the wall, blood not even dripping yet from his ruined eye. Another was on his stomach, breathing shallowly but seeing nothing. The last was a woman laying on her back and watching us with surprised eyes. She fumbled for something at her ear, which I saw was a microphone. Ben Roggenston stooped to remove it gently, then stood back up and shot her in the face. Might have made the call. Must leave. Now. I finally was vomiting and turned away from the scene. Susan cried silently off to the side, but I could hear Gaela standing over the thin man. She gasped violently as if recognizing him for the first time. Then came the fast, steady rhythm of something light but hard hitting something hard but increasingly wet. I felt drops touch the side of my face and looked down to find a splatter of blood on my borrowed jumpsuit. Wiping it off my cheek, I turned back to see Gaela beating on the prone man's head until it was formless. Porcon! Rapist! Die! Just die! Die! I hadn't eaten in hours, so not much came up. I just let my stomach settle, eyes averted as the woman worked her rage. Baby, please stop it, Susan called finally, running over. The chaos, the fear, the hiding for their lives hadn't done it. But seeing her wife beating a man into an unrecognizable pulp had spurred her to movement. She dragged the screaming, weeping, red-drenched Gaela away from the gaunt one, and the woman continued to flail at the air with madness and hate. That pig-raped girls! We saw him, Susan, we saw him! His freedom fighters, Jenna Sola, she was one, little Jenna dead, we saw him and the others. <laughs> I know, I know. Can cry on ship, Ben Roggenston interrupted, carefully stepping around the bodies, his eyes hard, his voice arresting. We move. They took a moment to react to rein in their horror and outrage, to bottle up the hate and fear once more. But then they slowly followed him, like somnambulists sleepwalking their way out of a nightmare. Their tears still ran, but both women were now grimly focused, just like the older man, just like me. Because we weren't safe yet, not by a long shot. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. 
You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.